1: This week, Missing Children and Missing Parents in Sheena Kamal's debut novel Eyes Like Mine and Kate Hamer's second novel The Doll Funeral. Sheena Kamal has been a stunt double, a stand-in and a film and TV extra. She has been a producer's assistant and most recently a researcher for a gritty TV crime drama series set in Toronto. Sheena's debut novel, Eyes Like Mine, which we're going to talk about today, was inspired by one issue that kept cropping up during her research, the plight of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. Sheena holds her HBA in political science from the University of Toronto, which she attended on Canada's most prestigious scholarship and was awarded a TD Canada Trust Scholarship for community leadership and activism around the issue of homelessness. know, welcome to Little Atoms.
0: I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Tell us, how, how would you describe Eyes Like Mine? What's it about?
0: It's a, it's a suspense novel about a psychological thriller, about a woman who discovers that the child she'd given up for adoption 15 years ago has gone missing, and she's drawn into the very deep and dark events of her own past in order to find out what happened to this girl that she didn't want to bring into the world, basically, and she, um, and she tried to bury. And so as the story moves along, she is compelled by this person that she, for a long time, she pretended never never even existed.
1: And she's indeed contacted by um, Bonnie, her daughter's adoptive parent, or right. her adoptive father in, in, in the initial circumstances, to actually to look for her for them, mm-hmm. because she's, she's not a private eye.
0: No, well, they not to look for her, but uh, Bonnie was looking for her yes. birth family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as many adopted kids do, wondering where she came from kind of thing. And um, so she had been looking on you know, underground sites and things like that to, to, to find some sort of connection, some sort of knowledge of uh, where she came from. And they knew that. And so when she eventually went missing, they thought, well, maybe they're, mm. I'm going to look for her too. Maybe she knows.
1: And as I said she's she's not a, a detective or private eye herself but she works for a private eye right. in an interesting and, capacity.
0: Right. So this this is what it is is that uh, if you ever tried to live in Vancouver you would <laughs> realize that it's insane to try to make life work there. Mm-hmm. It is so expensive just cost of living but also rent, you know, housing it's one of the top 3 most unaffordable cities to live in in the world. So everybody's got many different jobs that they kind of they take and they fall into things and you know fall out of things and it's just to make life work there is pretty difficult unless you come from serious money, and so there's a quite a brain drain that happens in the city as well. So, you know, a lot of people just sort of they barely make it. They see, you know, they kind of walk that line, and Nora is one of those people. So she kind of fell into this, you know. She shared research assistant, you know. With sometimes secretary, sometimes she goes and does like PI stuff, but she's not she's not licensed. So yeah, she does whatever it is to, to make it work as many as many people do well perhaps I should
1: say a bit more about Vancouver which not all of the novel is set in in Vancouver it's also out in wider British Columbia but the city itself why is it so expensive to live there then what's so great about Vancouver
0: you know it's, it's a constant debate actually it's like it's like talking about the weather <laughs> it's in Vancouver talking about the weather is essentially uh, talking about housing prices there are a lot of reasons people kind of have their own, everyone has their own opinion as to why Vancouver is so uh, unaffordable, but really just a lot of people want to live there because it is so beautiful. It is so stunning. It is really a, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever, I've ever lived and been to. So the draw of it is, is quite heady, but um, yeah, you know.
1: It's also for a book like this, which is not a travelogue, it's also a place where, there's, I mean, there famously there was like a massive drug problem in Vancouver. You talk about there's like an area, isn't there? What's the area called? Like, Hastings a, Street. Yeah, Hastings, yeah, yeah,
0: Hastings yeah. Street. So this is this is a funny story. So this is what happened. I tried to be an actor for a really long time, and so a lot of actors from Toronto they would go over to Vancouver for pilot season because mm-hmm. Vancouver was close to LA, and so and the TV, the they make a lot of
1: TV. Americans it stands in for American city a lot.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's this really it's this, yeah. Um it's a thing that you know a lot of actors do and I did that one one year um and I I didn't know anything about Vancouver really and I just chose like whatever was affordable and it was like barely affordable and it turned out to be on this street called Hastings Street which is basically just the most run down like drug filled kind of area in in Vancouver um and it was it, it was pretty bad and I was I was shocked by it I didn't really think um and i'd seen tent cities in um in toronto and mm-hmm. and the like but Va- vancouver was something quite different the level of poverty there the level of um drug abuse just openly in the streets kind of thing i could not stay for more than a few weeks because the weather just got da- at that time it just got me down mm-hmm. and I was depressed, and I was like, "I can't, I can't see the sun." I mean, you guys are in London, so you know what I mean. It's yeah, you just you get sad, and uh, and so. Sure I, there is a sun up there, but we haven't seen it for weeks. weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. So I, I couldn't take it, so I, I left. But it stayed with me, and so when I wanted to write a novel, and I knew it was going to be suspense and really gritty, and I thought. I thought of that place. But what was really interesting though is that I've never felt unsafe on Hastings Street. Mm-hmm. I mean it's shocking but it's, it's weird. I never felt in danger on Hastings Street, strangely. Mm-hmm. Maybe in my personal habits didn't lend themselves to putting myself in situations um, like that. But but yeah, so it was... There's just something about it, you know? The, that it's so unaffordable and so beautiful and mm-hmm. you've got these huge mansions and whatnot and then there's a street that is like that there. How these two things exist, mm-hmm. the level of income inequality in that city in particular is, um, yeah, it's the stuff that really is interesting to, to plumb as a, as a writer
1: let's go back to to Nora then who's I don't know where, how much we want to we want to get into about her because obviously we don't want to give what happens in the story away but she's basically well failing okay. to constantly failing to get over a traumatic background
0: yeah yeah she's she's developed these weird survival instincts that um, that don't help her move forward in life. They help her manage. And so she's she's managing. And uh, a lot of people who have addiction issues, a lot of people who have struggled with traumatic events, it is very hard to just barely make it and to just manage to put one foot in front of the other and just go through life. And that's, and that's where she is when this happens. And it catapults her into a n- completely unfamiliar territory for her because she's got to examine her feelings and she's actually got to... Confront things that she's chosen to really run away from and, and keep behind her for a long time.
1: And can we say? Are we able to say how Bonnie, how this is—you this, know—the story of looking for Bonnie is directly connected to that past?
0: Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. We're definitely able to say that. Um, Bonnie represents that dark past. She doesn't want to go there, and that, and she doesn't want to care. And she's often surprised that she does care because she's tried so hard for so very long to not. Not even think about this person, but that she's in danger. You know, she can't help herself.
1: Let's talk about some of the other characters then. So I mentioned that she's she works for Seven Leo, who are these this couple who are uh, well, one of them's a private eye, mm-hmm. one of them's a journalist, and as I said, she has this interesting role where she's sort of secretly living in their basement. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is funny, um, and also going out. You know, being a personal assistant doing transcribing for them but they're also going out on you know stakeouts and things and surveillance and stuff tell us something about seven leo
0: seven leo are wonderful people they are this uh this couple that are just madly in love and they are kind and generous and supportive and they nora sort of fits in their little family um, and she doesn't really think of them that way until she starts to kind of confront her issues, and then she realizes how important they are. But they—they've welcomed her, and they don't judge her. And she—sometimes um, you find family out there that you—you—you you, you would never expect that these people would be your family, and they—they they become that, and that's what they are—they are to Nora. In a way, they're they're mentors. They do, um, you know, provide an income, whatever. But in another way, they're they're emotional support, and they really care as much as she lets them care.
1: And then we could perhaps contrast them with Everett and Lynn, who are the you know the adoptive parents of yeah. Bonnie, who are not that you know that sort of support that she has from Lear. They yeah. have secrets of their own.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, they do, and it's it was an interesting character study for me to. Think about what it's like to, for a couple to be in love and start off and, and not being able to have their own children so they adopt a child, but then what happens when the marriage falls apart? And then the child also is like, you're not my actual parents anyway, and, and what kind of pressures does that put on a relationship and how does that affect your relationship with your child? Because you know, the breakup of a family is a, it's a traumatic thing in general, but then you add this other layer to it, and how, how difficult is that? even just imagine it's um so yeah i i have a lot i know they, they come off a certain way in the book but personally i have a lot of sympathy for them i think they're in a, an untenable situation
1: and tell us something about bonnie herself who is she
0: she's a girl that's struggling with her identity she doesn't really know who she is and most teenagers don't um and they're trying things out and they're just you know they have that stage where they're rebelling against their parents and and that's where she is she's she's in that rebellious stage and she's she's opening up about her sexuality as well and become, coming into her own as a young woman and dealing with also very tough issues of, of who am i and who who are, you, who are you my parents and you know i don't look like you and what does that what does that actually matter in a in a family situation anyway so she's um and but she's she's pretty resourceful on her own you know, she's uh she's a little bit complicated and conflicted, but she's she kind of mirrors her mother in a lot mm-hmm. of ways in ways that disturb Nora, I think. That she that she's like that, that she's able to um yeah.
1: And then there's one other character I wanted to talk about who is Whisper. Right, yeah. Who, um great character, also has her own problems. so yeah. has a lot of issues. She's horny. Um, she's
0: an inf- she's like she's an nymphomaniac, is what she is. Yeah.
1: And we should say that uh, Whisper is um, is Nora's dog.
0: Oh yeah, she's a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should have said that. <laughs> we should have started off with that.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. So tell us something about Whisper. She's great.
0: Yeah, she's. It kind of came out of the fact that I know that some people they just get on better with animals mm-hmm. than they do with people because people are judgy. <laughs> and Nora just can't deal with that. Yeah. And Whisper just sort of chose her, took a liking to her, or, or just saw something and was like, you know, it's you. You, I... I you. That sort of shocked Nora, but it, it also brought her out of her shell in a different way and gave her someone to be responsible for. And, and that's her pack. That's her family like seven Leo. So yeah, a whisper was great, fun to write.
1: I think it's great also how you you talk about how you know having a dog is a is a great tool for a private eye of somebody who's out doing surveillance because nobody takes any notice (laughs) of people with dogs.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They've got to be there walking their dog. That's what you gotta do.
1: Little Atoms. I'm Neil Deddy. Today I'm talking to Sheena Kamal and we're talking about her debut novel Eyes Like Mine. Sheena let's talk about the what I mentioned in the introduction, the sort of real life backstory that came out of your research that influenced this story, The Highway of Tears it's called. What is that?
0: The Highway of Tears is a highway to the north of the province where um, it's a place that exists in in Canada that's how do, I, how do I say this? It's so tough to talk about. Basically, a lot of women go missing and and were murdered along the Highway of Tears. And they are women primarily of Indigenous heritage. The way it came into my consciousness is um, there are some activists and some writers and scholars and community leaders who have been working for a really long time to get the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women to put that on the the nation, to bring it to the national conversation mm-hmm. and to say to Canadians, look, this is happening, and I paid attention to those conversations, and it really, it really affected me because it, it's not just limited to that highway. It actually, um, I guess, how vulnerable Indigenous women, girls, and women are. It's throughout our society. To violence And not just Indigenous women, I have to say. There's um, an article that just uh, is breaking right now with the Globe and Mail in Canada talking about how a large percentage of uh, sexual assaults that are reported to police are dismissed as unfounded. And um, higher than any other kind of crime, they're dismissed as unfounded. And looking at why exactly the police are finding these cases baseless and why exactly girls and women are going into Police stations saying, "Look, this happened," and the police are not taking them seriously, um, and that happens across the board. But when you look at who's the most vulnerable, Indigenous communities have been, you know, are of particular um, they of need to, to you know, for us to really look at it and 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 see the reasons why this is happening. So yeah, that affects me on a personal level. I don't know why. It was just something that I I couldn't get out of my head. And there was, um, last year as well, uh, there was this article that said, it looked at what Canadians are clicking on. So, missing and murdered indigenous women, journalists are talking about it. People are really trying to have the conversations, but the public, they're not clicking on the articles. They're not reading them. They are aware that something is happening, but they don't want to confront it. And I think that's um, representative of our attitudes in general towards issues of violence against women and in issues of, of indigenous people indigenous issues in our in our society. So people know they exist and journalists wanna cover them, but Canadians are not are not interested in actually looking further.
1: We obviously are very familiar with the story of the USA's treatment of its indigenous peoples. Yeah. But the Canadian story is a bit less well known. So in a sort of like, you know, on a wider scale, what happened?
0: What happened was that um I, I call it branding. Like I it's it Canada's brand is a, one of a international peacekeeper. And our PR person, whoever that is, is fabulous. Yeah. And so and everyone thinks that it's this very liberal place, is very progressive place.
1: You got a cute little prime minister now. He
0: takes his shirt off, and he's a, you know actually I I think Trudeau has a pretty tough job, um but, but yeah but he you know every time something happens you know he gets on and he's like it doesn't happen in Canada and but really bad things happen in Canada and we have a terrible history, um when it comes to. In Indigenous history, when it comes to, um, we had uh, segregation as well during the Jim Crow time, and it wasn't legislated, but it was in practice, still segregation. We also turned away um, Jews looking for refuge in Canada, um, like the States. We did that as well, and they they went by, they were sent back, and they were murdered, or a large percentage of them were murdered. Yeah, we and the mosque shooting that just mm-hmm. happened, um, we had an act of, of homegrown terror. Um, Someone who went into a mosque and shot it up and, and killed people, and it caused a lot of harm. So we do we do have these things, but Canadians like to think that we're better than America. That this kind of hatred doesn't exist in Canada, and it does. When and I think it it comes from this. Lack of ability to really look at ourselves and who we are, and to st- and to, to examine our narrative as people who live in this in this land.
1: Tell us a bit about the um, the residential schools.
0: Right. Well, residential schools were um, and and I and I have to say I'm not an indigenous person. I um, I follow these issues, and and so I get my knowledge from other activists mm-hmm. and other people who are really bringing it forward. Um, but residential schools was Canada's attempt at assimilation when the fur trade happened you know Europeans would come over but it was primarily to just trade and then when people started wanting to settle in Canada they needed to deal with their so-called Indian problem and so uh, residential schools were boarding schools where a lot of very traumatic things happened a lot of um, horrifying things happened in residential schools kids were not allowed to have their culture they were not allowed to speak their languages they were there was abuse there was uh, there were nutritional studies done on children where to develop vitamins, you know, experiments done on them. These things happened. And um, one thing that, that really affects me very deeply is that I learned just a few years ago, actually, that the last residential school closed in 1996. Wow. But yeah, it was not, not a long time ago. I immigrated to Canada in 1989. I was a child then. I was a child going to school learning about residential schools like they were a thing of the past you know oh but back then it's doesn't when there was a residential Mm -hmm. school actually open and and i'm an immigrant and my parents came here buying into the this idea of the canadian dream and the treatment of indigenous peoples shows that this is a lie this dream is not actually something that is real
1: as you mentioned, you you're not an Indigenous Canadian, or you that's know, right. a, a Canadian. You moved at a young age from Trinidad. Mm-hmm. So, what was your own experience as as an immigrant to Canada?
0: Um, I it's funny because I'm pretty much the embodiment of the Canadian dream mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and that's sort of tough to <laughs> to reconcile as well because I know that it's a lie, but I also, I mean, Canada has. I've had so many opportunities in Canada and I was I had a great public school education I was encouraged to volunteer and, and be part of my community and through that volunteerism I won a scholarship and that paid for my university education mm-hmm. I had um, access to health care I just you know clean water things like that like I have lived the Canadian dream and it was real for me mm-hmm. Um, which is why I, I get so upset that, at this idea that it's not real for everybody and that it's not a real thing because that is, <laughs> you know, that's not, um, it's not right. But I, I, there, there were some issues growing up, you know, little slurs in the playground and whatnot. But by and large, I was accepted and I felt, I've always been a loner, by the way. So, I mean, not accepted by my peers, but just in, in society in general, it was, it was fine, you know. I had, I had a really good upbringing.
1: I want to talk about the the transition from acting to writing, but before we do yeah. that, just tell us something about this. You know, I mentioned you know you've worked as a as a stunt double right. and a stand-in. So say yeah. something about that. <laughs>
0: Well, the the that story is that I was I was trying to be an actor, but um, but that's you know that was a rough ride. And you basically, as a broke actor, you take whatever job you get. So um, in many databases, my profile is in you know and very specific, like your your exact proportions, your hair, your skin color, lots of photographs, whatever. And sometimes they would need to match actors. For standing in and for stunt doubling, um, for photo doubling as well, uh, pretty much anything in front of the camera that you can do at union rates. I I was like, yes, union rates, like that, yes. So so that's really what it was. Is that I um, took what it, those opportunities as they came in to pay the bills. <laughs> yeah, but it was but it was fun. It was good fun. Um, I've stood in for Archie Punjabi, who is. One of I think Britain's great actors on mm-hmm. uh, a film she did called Traitor, um, and they it was that was really interesting because I got to sit into a, in a lie detector chair because there was a scene she had to do where she was in a lie detector chair, and so they needed to light the scene for a long time she wasn't going to sit in the chair, so I got to sit in the chair with the technician, and he was explaining you know how you figure out <laughs> like how people have how how, how the, it works, mm-hmm. which is so interesting. So you get all sorts of fascinating opportunities if you're available. I'm waiting for auditions.
1: <laughs> and so yeah, so then moving on to writing. So the tra- how did you find the sort of transition from, you know, from acting to writing, I guess is what I wanted to talk.
0: About. Yeah, I'm I'm a deeply political person and I did um in in university I did political science. So that's what my degree is in and my background as well is is pretty um focused on issues and things like that. So I don't know why I took a... Like, in my 20s, I was like, I'm going to be an actor! <laughs> it, was a, it was a crazy thing. But um, the writing was just me coming back to myself, but on my own terms, and, and realising that I had a creative drive in me, and I was, I was searching for what that, the right outlet was.
1: And um, just last thing for me, then I'll ask you to read some, but are we, going, are we likely to see Dora again?
0: Yes! I've uh, I finished my first draft of the sequel... So that's in, in, to the, uh, in the editing process now. Um, yeah, yeah, there are going to be three of them.
1: Wow, that's really exciting.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited by it as well. And she's a great character. I love her. I mean, she's, she's tough, but I love her. So this is the first chapter from my debut novel called Eyes Like Mine. And it, is, um, it sets the stage for Nora getting that call. The call comes in just after five in the morning. I am immediately on guard because everyone knows that nothing good ever happens this early. Not with a phone call, anyway. You never get word that a wealthy relative has passed and is leaving you his inheritance before 9am. It's fortunate, then, that I'm already awake and on my second cup of coffee, so I'm at least moderately prepared. I've just come back from my walk, where I leaned over the edge of the seawall and contemplated water that is calm and grey, just like the city itself at this time of year. As usual, I tried to see the warm, dark current that flows from Japan and turns into into the North Pacific, tempering the cold and spreading its tepid fingers to the coastline. And as usual, it refused me the pleasure. Vancouver. Some people say it's beautiful here, but they've never idled in the spaces that I call home. They've never been down to Hastings Street, filled with its needles and junkies. They've never considered the grey sky and the grey water for months on end as rain pours down in an unsuccessful attempt at cleansing. Then comes summer, and it's so hot that you can roast marshmallows on the fires that burn through the forests in the province. Summer right on the coast is nice enough, but still several months away when my phone rings. I stare at the unfamiliar number on my call display and, after a moment of hesitation, decline to take it. Several seconds later, it rings again. I'm intrigued. I answer, if only because I've always admired persistence in a caller. Hello? There's a long pause after the person on the other end explains in a hoarse voice why he's calling. The pause becomes awkward. I can tell the caller is fighting himself, wanting to say more but knowing this is a bad idea. No one wants to talk to a rambler over the phone, especially one you've never met before. I imagine the caller is sweating on the other end. Maybe his hands have gone clammy. The phone slips from his grasp and I hear it clatter to the ground. He swears for a full 30 seconds as he struggles to pick it back up and regain his composure. "'You still there? Did you hear what I said?' he asks. "'Yeah, I heard,' I say, when the silence has become excruciating. "'I'll be there.' Then I hang up. "'I've never heard the name Everett Walsh before, "'but according to him I may know something about a missing girl. "'He does not tell me what, though. "'I consider not meeting him, but he sounds desperate, "'and if there's one thing that draws me more than persistence, it's desperation. "'Even though finding people is part of what I do for a living,' What would I possibly know about a missing girl to warrant a call at this hour? His desperation is so fresh and raw, I can almost taste it.
1: I've been talking to Sheena Kamal. We've been talking about her debut novel, Eyes Like Mine, which is out now from Bonnier Zafra. Sheena, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>
1: I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Kate Hamer grew up in Pembrokeshire. Her best-selling novel, which we talked about in the previous Little Atoms, The Girl in the Red Coat, was a number three Sunday Times bestseller and was shortlisted for the Costa First Book Award, the Bookseller Industry Awards' Debut Fiction Book of the Year, the John Creasy New Blood Dagger and Wales Book of the Year. And her second novel, which we're going to talk about today, is The Doll Funeral. Kate, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. So tell me what The Doll Funeral is about.
2: The central character is called Ruby. The book opens on her 13th birthday and she's told for the first time that she's adopted. Her parents have decided this day to let her know. And um, she has a slightly unexpected reaction Mm -hmm. to that in that she runs out into this unkempt back garden and starts singing for joy to the storm clouds. But there are reasons for this, because up till now, her life has been a very difficult one. So this is the best news that she's she's ever received. It's the jumping-off point for the book, really, she goes on a search for her real parents after this, which turns out to be a more dangerous mission than she imagined.
1: And as usual, this is a, a book that we don't we don't want to give too much away of the story, but suffice to say that Ruby, she's a singular girl. She sees the world differently, doesn't she?
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. She she has a kind of insight into lost souls that not everybody might do. And because of that Uh, when she starts uncovering the kind of secrets in her own family which have led up to her adoption it opens quite a can of worms both in her own and other people's families I would say it's kind of about the past reaching out its arm and uh, kind of strangling the present and can you ever escape that you know it's 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 those sort of ideas that i was interested in
1: well can we say something about the the character of shadow who's mm. who's a boy that's sort of hanging around her? yeah yeah tell us something about him
2: shadow at the beginning was a tiny part in the narrative and he was just I don't know it's really strange I think when I'm writing and I'm sure this goes for many people but certain characters get very insistent and he was one of them and he was definitely tugging at my sleeve saying no you want you know you need to tell my story you know you need to you know I'm important too you know I want to be heard on these pages and very much so. He's a character from the past that, that still inhabits the present and, and kind of is Ruby's little kind of spooky friend, I would say. Without giving too much away, it's really hard. No, well, <laughs> without giving too much away, again,
1: how you've just described him to yourself is basically represents that for Ruby as well. Yeah, I mean, I basically think so. wants her to, to tell his story. Yeah, yeah,
2: I think so, yes. And because nobody ever has before either, you know, he's one of um history's sort of silent uh, people i suppose In in, in that he could have disappeared without you know an, an, another word but and so he's get, he's getting a second chance to sell, tell his story through ruby i think
1: Ruby, as you said, she's been adopted. We'll talk about Barbara and Mick, her adopted mm. parents, in a moment. There is also a parallel narrative starting off in 1970. That's
2: right, yeah. Which is
1: about Anna and Lewis, Ruby's mm. actual parents, which is we won't go into again too much detail because that's the sort of meat of the story of what mm. Ruby goes on to try and investigate. But tell us something about Anna.
2: Anna i I felt really close to anna actually she 's um, it's the book is based in the Forest of Dean and she 's very much from that place and rooted in that place you know she 's not traveled very much she 's a kind of country girl really a clever country girl, but with quite narrow opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I think in that era, when she finds herself pregnant as well, her opportunities narrow much, much further. And I think we kind of forget now, from the perspective that we have, how difficult um, unwedded pregnancy would have been, even in 1970, in certain places. I mean, we're talking before the pill was widely available and, and all this sort of thing. So her choices, her choices get really, really difficult and um, it's, it's kind of that cusp of the late 60s, early 70s which I think is interesting as well you know, hmm. we think of that time as a sort of very wild and liberated time but yeah. I think for most people it probably really was Yeah, it was wasn't. for about
1: 30 people who lived Walking yeah. distance from the King's Road. Yeah, exactly. The rest of the country was great, and miserable.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I do mention that I say um, something about you know she she knows she's not like somebody living in Carnaby Street and the people that she reads about. So um, it's really again a book about the psychology of uh, family and how it interacts and and how I suppose if you let it, that kind of conditioning or past can go on. Uh, kind of defining your future forever.
1: There's a, a striking image of, of Anna wearing a yellow dress and I, I've seen this mentioned in other reviews and, and uh, conversations about the book but I can't resist asking it again. <laughs> the previous book was um, The Girl in a Red Coat yeah. Why is this book not called <laughs> The Woman in the yellow, yellow Dress?
2: Oh I couldn't do that, I couldn't do that I was, Do you know I did have a little temptation but I couldn't, I couldn't do that but I'm really... Well, A, I'm interested in clothes. I think they're sort of big signifiers for people. But I'm also really interested in colour. And I think definitely... And it's reflected in the cover, actually. The colour yellow is, is a bit of a thread mm-hmm. through through this book. I mean, I think colours reflect emotions quite, quite strongly. And, and yellow... In one way, it's a quite a sunny, obviously sunflower color, but I think it's got another side to it as well, so without sounding completely nuts, I think yellow's a very dualistic, interesting color so yeah, the yellow does thread through the book, definitely, yeah
1: let 's talk about Barbara and Mick for a moment, so Barbara is the the mother figure in mm. in this book in reality, because obviously Anna is in the past and lost. Mm. Barbara, the adoptive mother, and Mick, they have lost a daughter of their own Mm. before they adopted Ruby. Tell us something about that.
2: Yeah. Um, Yes, I mean, I'm not really interested in writing black and white characters and nearly all the characters in the book as some kind of shade of grey or other. They've had their own history before they arrive at this point, you know, of telling to, to Ruby about her adoption and all this sort of thing. So... I just think everybody's got their backstory. You know, and that's something that was very important in the first book, and I think it's true for this. Again, I think it's possibly a bit of a cliché, but I heard once that every villain is the hero in their own story. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that when I'm writing, that people are uh, like they are in various ways because of frailty or weakness or or whatever, but it's complex. It's just always really complex how they've ended up to be in a certain place. And I wanted to reflect that in all the characters. And that includes Ruby, actually.
1: Well, I think, particularly with Barbara there, Mick is... You know, it's not giving too much away to say that he's he's an abusive character. Yeah, yeah. Barbara clearly knows that's going on. Yeah, you know, that's obviously talks about she knows that's going on, and yet you know you still manage to make her the, a a very sympathetic character.
2: Yeah, I had a lot of I had a lot of empathy for Barbara actually, and um, again she's a she's a complex character. She knows what's going on isn't acceptable. But uh, she's, you know, uh, it's just difficult for her, and she's tired, and she's she's had her own griefs mm-hmm. in the past, and and all sorts of things. So, again, it's a kind of complex complex mix, I think, which to me is what I think human life is.
1: Both this book and the um, the girl in the red coat feature a mother and a daughter, wherein yeah. the daughter is this sort of strange, otherworldly, <laughs> spooky character. They have
2: no idea what you are
1: And the mother is well, I was going to say something like you know problematic or you know a bit difficult, but mainly I just mean realistic.
2: <laughs> yeah, I honestly think that um, mother and daughter relationships are just really interesting and potent and they're often portrayed as being quite kind of romantic in a funny way, quite chocolate box and saccharine. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not like that at all. I mean, there's all sorts of things. They're quite competitive sometimes and complex. So I definitely, and I think that happens quite early mm-hmm. as well, in, you know, eight, nine, and the, the kind of push-me-pull-you stuff starts coming up. So I wanted to explore it as a realistic relationship and not, not the kind of hearts and roses thing that you, that is often, I think, Mother's Day and all that sort of thing portrayed to be, you know. You hear women talking about their mothers, like, properly face-to-face, and it's, not, it's definitely not like that at all. Mm-hmm.
1: And both of the girls are, you know, they're very mature, they're very self-sufficient. You know, yeah, so they sure. seem both seem... Wise beyond their years.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe wise beyond. I I don't know actually because I mean the other thing I think about both books and both characters is that I think kids have a more interesting and kind of developed. Thought process and inner life than people give them credit for, and so maybe I'm just reflecting that in the book. I think more than thinking they're like way wise beyond their years. What I was hoping to do was give a snapshot of how I perceive that age group and the sort of inner life that they probably lead.
1: I've read that you, you, know, you yourself were left to, to bring yourself up on your own for a period of time when you were young as well, and and that. Can't help but be reflected in these two characters,
2: I think. Yeah, well, I think Left to Bring Myself Up was probably not quite that extreme, but I was, my parents were involved in an accident, quite a catastrophic car accident, and my mum was away from the home for a long time, and sort of normal family life did cease quite significantly. And it wasn't, I think it was a, a, a period where, because I was away from the busyness of normal family existence it was a bit of a um, what do they call it time out of time Mm -hmm. you know and so I think that's definitely played its part in in, and I read you know I was lucky enough to come from a a house full of books and I probably read even more because of that because the quietness of it Mm -hmm. all so it was a a, quite an important time (laughs)
1: It's Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Kate Hamer and we're talking about her new novel, The Doll Funeral. And Kate, I want to talk about the setting of this book. It's set in the Forest of mm, Dean, yeah. which I'm only sort of really familiar with from like Dennis Potter stuff or whatever. Like, mm. I know where it is, but I don't know much about it. Why there?
2: Yeah, it was. I tried to write this story in a couple of times in mm-hmm. different locations. Uh, in the, I tried to set it in the South Wales Valleys and also in just outside of Manchester, and it just never. Something was missing, and I knew it was missing. It was mm-hmm. really frustrating. And uh, we were on a day out, and I don't know why we were in Monmouth, but I'd never been to the Forest of Dean, and I saw a sign for it. And uh, I said, well, let's go and have a little look. And I knew as soon as we went in that the story had found its location (laughs) because I'd never been, I think that, I mean, there are others in Britain, but I'd never been into a living, working forest in this country before. (laughs) And I just found it fascinating that there were these communities living under the canopy, really. And it was kind of a relief. It was like, phew, this is where Ruby lives. (laughs) I found it at last, you know. So that is a really, really interesting place. It's on the borders. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually officially in England but it's very much that sort of border between Wales and England. It's a little bit not one or t'other sort of thing. It's got a lot of Wales about it and the fact that, you know, it's dominated by chapel and rugby and and all this sort of thing. But on the other hand, it's a place of it all of its own Mm -hmm. as well. It's got a kind of mystery to it. And I think forests are just... I think in literature and in fable and folklore, they've got a kind of... Real, a really strong flavour and importance in in terms of storytelling mm-hmm. to them.
1: Well, we, talk, we talked. Well, we talked about the uh, the kind of new address about fairy tale and yeah. about the influence of that on you, and that comes out even more in this book.
2: I think. Yeah, yes, it does definitely. I mean, the forest is such a um, ingredient in fairy tales. Whether actually on both ends of the scale, whether it's threat or kind of home. It can be both, I think. And I suppose more than anything, this book is about can you find a different path through the forest? I think if I had to sum it up... (laughs) Can, can somebody from you know whatever background find their own way and path through the forest, and that's what Ruby attempts to do.
1: I mentioned the uh, the image of the the yellow dress, and we talked last time about the um, the red coat, and how mm. you'd had that image of of the red coat before the story. Basically, yeah. you had that, and that's where everything else sort of came from. And this time, that image is Ruby running out into the garden yeah, when she finds out so. that she's um, that she's being adopted. Let's talk bit about that process. So how you have this this single idea, <laughs> and then you know a couple of years later, four years later, in the case of the girl in the red coat, a book comes out of it. Let's talk about yeah. how how it comes out of that seed.
2: Yeah, I think where the initial image comes from is really hard to say. <laughs> it just it just sort of presents itself. And I think maybe the the trick is just accepting it and and thinking yeah, it's something you've got to follow. But that was definitely you know and quite a filmic sort of image of almost like a camera's behind her mm-hmm. tracking as she as she runs out into this unkempt garden. So yeah, and imagery is really important for me. I think it drives. The whole the whole book really the whole narrative it kind of unfolds as one image after the other but that that starting image is always the most important as well
1: but let's talk about the, the process of turning that into into writing
2: mm. I'm trying to trust and allow my subconscious to do the work and not force it too much because I think if you just let it stew for a little bit the story starts unfolding Mm -hmm. I I seem to have come up with this way of working in that and this is with the next book that I'm working on at the moment is true as well that I write the beginning and then very quickly I write the last page and definitely the last sentence Mm -hmm. So I always sort of know where I'm heading, and then in between, that the journey might take you to places that you weren't expecting. But you've always got those. I've always got those two points that I'm navigating between. Um,
1: well, having done that that more than once, then I mean, yeah. do you find that you can be further away from that, you know, from that distant <laughs> point where you're supposed to be heading to than you than you
2: Yeah, I think certain character. I think it's more in the characters in both books. Um in the first one it was the twins mm-hmm. and in the second one it was shadow characters turn up that you're not quite expecting they pop up and they say you know what about me you know <laughs> kind of not really um I don't know I'm I'm kind of it sounds like I'm trying to make it sound like it's a really kind of like mysterious mystical thing and it's not really it's it's it seems quite a natural organic process but I think I think it's more the characters that, that present themselves. They're the ones that change the story, you know, because their personalities start interacting on everything else and, and changing everything.
1: Just a, a couple more things from me, then, and I'll get you to, to read a bit of the book. So we spoke about The Girl in the Red Coat just before it was published, mm-hmm. and subsequently, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's been a massive success, it's been a bestseller, it's been shortlisted for a load of awards... Let's talk about how that all came about. What was that? What was your reaction when all of that was going on, do you
2: think? Well, I mean, when I was writing it, you, you know, you write your novel. I didn't even know that it was going to get published, <laughs> let alone anything else. So everything has been a really lovely surprise. But I also feel quite strongly that you know, now I'm working on the next book as well, that every time you start writing something new it's very much like opening a door on a building Mm -hmm. that you don't know at all. It's uncharted territory, so you're Going in and wandering around, and but yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, it was wonderful. Every everything, everything that happened around it was was really wonderful.
1: But does that also put? I mean, it could work either way. It could put pressure on you know, thinking about the next book and yeah. hoping that achieves something similar, or at the same time grants you a bit of you know a bit mm. of freedom to, to to do something else.
2: Yeah, I think I, I what I I've tried to do, and I try and discipline myself to do this is think every day. Is just about the page and what you put on the page, and that's that's your job is just thinking about that. And you know you can't let you can't think about the rest of it. You can't. You drive yourself crazy.
1: <laughs> um, you've mentioned you're working on a third one. What can you say about that one?
2: It's it's dark again. <laughs> no surprise. <laughs> yeah, no. it's about that sort of age around sixteen, seventeen, where things can potentially quite quickly and easily go very very wrong for people i think
1: that's all for me that's okay if you would uh, if you would let us sure. hear a bit of it
2: this is a little bit ruby has it's quite near the beginning she's found out that she's adopted and she's decided to do something about it however it, candidly it is in her own way she she feels she has to so she's decided to go out into the woods and to cast her own little spell I felt sure the more I thought of it, and that's about all I've been thinking of since my birthday, that my real parents did not want to give me up. I expected that went double for my mother, because mothers shouldn't want to give their children away. I refused to believe it could have been easy. There must have been a reason for it, something completely terrible. They'd chosen my name, Ruby, and the way you saw it, the way I saw it, why would you choose a name like that for a child you didn't want? Three nights after my birthday, the moon rose as fat as a peach. I watched it from my window turn the forest canopy into a shifting silver sea. Now I had a name for the big white emptiness burning like a desert inside. It was called Mum and Dad, and tonight it felt bad enough for my bones to crack. Anything seemed possible in this light. My real parents, my flesh and blood, could be near. Even living right here in the Forest of Dean, I just needed a way to find them. I left the pillow bunched in my bed, took the pillowcase with me and crept through the moonlit spaces of the house. On the bookshelf were two books from my gran, an aged book that used to belong to her, Pilgrim's Progress, and the Alice Adventures in Wonderland she'd given me for my ninth birthday. I had the idea to open one on a chance page and see if there might be a message from her there within the story. I hesitated, then picked Alice thinking even at that moment I'd probably chosen badly with these tales of disappearing cats and lizard gardeners. I put it in my pillowcase sack. I found the same sharp kitchen knife that had diced up my birthday cake and took it. As I left the house, I used it to delicately fillet some ears of barley from the dusty flower display under the mirror in the hall and dropped them in the sack amongst the other things. A ball of red wool, some horse chestnuts, rags... The flowers of the evening primroses were wide open and floated pale above the grasses. The back gate creaked on its hinges. It led directly into the trees. As I glided through the forest of my plain white nightie, I thought, with my sack and this knife sticking out in front of me, if anyone sees me, they'll think I'm a robber. And it made me brave, this looking like a robber girl, and the belief that I could strike fear into the hearts of others. Murderer though, murderer too Walking through the dark with a knife and sack The badness in me rose up and made me think I could be a murderer The knife began to bounce and wobble in my hand So I carefully dropped it into the pillowcase Hoping the blade wouldn't slice right through and cut my legs I walked deeper, then stopped by a tree Whose outline had something human about it Its slender trunk And I put both hands there I caressed the sandpapery bark It felt like an ash Us foresters know how to tell trees so well, I could do it even in this light. Despite the night, the air was warm and soft. I sat cross-legged under the tree and unpacked my pillowcase amongst the saplings that grew haphazardly wherever seeds had landed, some forcing their way, springing up from the ground, even where there was hardly any light at all. The forest was a strong body pushing out life wherever it could. I put everything out on the smooth white of the pillowcase one by one. The ears of barley horse chestnuts from my bedside drawer, torn-up grass, cloth and red thread from Barbara's workbox. When my gran was still alive, she'd shown me things behind the others' backs. She'd drop a leaf into the stew while Grandad wasn't looking and wink. Girls came to see her sometimes, always when Grandad was out. For girls who wanted to catch pregnant, she'd made miniature babies out of string and straw for them to drop in their pockets and keep there secretly. She called it invoking and said it had to be kept quiet because Grandad would disapprove. Everything you'd ever need was right here in the forest, she said. She'd never been away, not even as far as Gloucester. She died outside her cottage underneath the sycamore tree. They found her like a fallen doll against the trunk and said how sad it was she died alone. I think she'd decided it that way. There were sycamore keys in her hair. She had a lapful of them, as if she might have to try a hundred different doors to find out where to go next. When I was little, I used to copy her. I'd bunch leaves and herbs together and mutter over them. I'd put a stone by the door for evil wishes to stumble on. Then I was only playing, but tonight I felt life tingle in my fingertips, as though if I stuck a branch in the ground it might spurt green leaves. The knife winked as I lifted it up.
1: I've been talking to Kate Hamer. We've been talking about The Doll Funeral, which is out now from Faber & Faber. Kate, it's been a pleasure talking to you again.
2: Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
2: You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter, at Little Atoms.
1: If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks
2: for listening.